This is the Skyline SIV podcast. If you would like to connect with us, head on over to our website at skylinesib.com and follow us on social media at Skyline SIB on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. Oh, good morning, church. Wow, I don't know how I feel about that introduction, but um, <laughs> I'm excited for the Word of God. Are you? Yeah, so good to see all of you. Come and join us. Today, we are starting on a brand new series on the book, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is where we're going to be starting on. And today, as we start that, I've titled this message, Changed into His Glory. I'm Somebody say amen. You know, we are created to worship God, to be in relationship with God. And as we behold Jesus, we are changed into His image from glory to glory. So I want us to read together from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I want you to read it like you mean it. Amen? Ready? One, to go. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I want to start by asking you a question this morning. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt so misunderstood by the people who you loved? How would you respond if these people were people who you had invested your life into? People who you had mentored? People who you had walked alongside with? Perhaps even mentees or spiritual children? What if you heard that they had been slandering you behind your back? They had been spreading all these fake news about you? And on top of that, they've decided to turn away from the truths that you have taught them to go and pursue sue some other person who's come and had some influence in their life. People who are more eloquent, more charming, more good looking than you. How would you feel? Would you feel angry? Would you feel disappointed? Would you feel inferior? And what would you do? Well, if you were the Apostle Paul, you would be incredibly grieved. You would be broken in your heart, but with much prayer, you would write a letter to set things straight. And that letter for us is 2 Corinthians. You know, for me, 2 Corinthians is the epitome of tough love. As we read through the 13 chapters of this letter, we will begin to see that it is contains some of the toughest, strongest things that Paul has to say. And yet at the same time, it is one of the most gracious letters that we will ever read. It's right you know, as this is from a spiritual father to his spiritual children. And Paul, you know, he doesn't hold back. He doesn't mince his words. He doesn't try to make it sound pretty or better. He just gives it to them as it is. But in doing that, he is showing kindness. You know, very often a hard diagnosis is a kind diagnosis. Amen? Yeah? And that's what we see when we read 2 Corinthians. Paul reaches out right to these people who he cares for, using no holding back, socks it to them. But at the same time, it's coming from a place of love for them. He doesn't just write for the sake of discipline and correction, but really he's writing so that he can continue to encourage and strengthen the church in the way that they should live, to love 
um, share and care as a community of believers. And that will apply and speak into our situation today as well. Let's go through some background as we set the stage for 2 Corinthians in this season. Who was Paul writing to? Well, Paul was writing to the church in Corinth. It was a church that he had founded uh, in about AD 51 on his second missionary journey. And this incident is recorded for us in Acts chapter 18. Corinth as a city, it was a rich city. There was a very important port there which meant that there was a lot of trade going on. It also meant that there was a lot of traffic and people were moving in and out. There was a lot of mobility. And perhaps, you know, by the same token, the people were exposed to all kinds of influences. You know, they were people who were uh, got excited about the external things, the, the glam, the the fashion, uh, the, the money, and things that were going on. And perhaps by the same token, the same can be said for the church in Corinth. It was a passionate church, but it was shallow and far too easily distracted. When I start asking us this question today, is that the church today? Is that us today? Food for thought. Well, when was this book written? Scholars tell us most likely in AD 55 or 56. And uh, it was written. Where was it written? We cannot be entirely 100% sure, but it's reasonable to say that it was written while Paul was on his third missionary journey. While he was, uh, you know, he was, he was in Macedonia. He had, it is after the revival in Ephesus. He leaves, he crosses over to Macedonia because of riots that were happening in Asia Minor. Uh, and then it's likely he did a tour of the churches there. Uh, it was a tough time for the Apostle Paul. Like I said, there were riots that were going on. And there were Jews that were plotting against him wherever he was going. So it was a tough time for him. Why did Paul write this letter to the church in Corinth? There are three reasons that we can uh, take away from. The first one was there was a problem of discipline and morality. The first problem that the church in Corinth was struggling with was a problem of discipline and morality. You see, when Paul started the church there in AD 51, he had stayed with them for about 18 months. He leaves, continues on on his mission journey, and he'll hear back some news about the church in Corinth. He will hear about serious issues that have come to plague the church. And these issues were things like the church uh, having people who were uh, spiritually superior over one another. There were issues where members of the church were suing each other in courts. They were abusing communion by marginalizing the poor. Uh, and they were also tolerating grave sexual misbehavior, uh, including incest. So the church in Corinth, it was problematic to the point where its very life and ministry were threatened. Why was it urgent that Paul address these issues? Because morality issues could destroy the church from inside. And that goes for our church today. Whatever church it is, where there are morality issues, they must be addressed because morality issues can destroy the church from inside. Here's another problem that the church in Corinth was struggling with. It was a problem of sectarianism or apostleship. So on top of all the things that the church in Corinth was struggling with, they had welcomed in itinerant ministers or traveling preachers who had really, really impressive resumes. These guys, they, they built their platform largely by putting Paul down and elevating themselves. And they questioned Paul's legitimacy as an apostle. They questioned his teaching. They questioned his approach to ministry. This resulted in the church becoming divided, becoming cliquish. And despite all of that, you know what? Paul doesn't give up on the Corinthians. Somebody say amen. He doesn't give up on them. But why was this an urgent problem that had to be uh, addressed? It was urgent because if morality issues will tear the church apart from inside, division will break it up and just tear it apart. There's a third problem in the church in Corinth that Paul was writing to. 
it was this. There was a problem of their relationship to Paul. You know, as we read 2 Corinthians, we will see that it contains some of the most direct teaching that Paul has. And uh, he, he, he talks a lot about his role as a pastor. You will see as you read it that it is full of personal comments. You get an insight into the heart, into the mind of Paul. And Paul reveals details about his life, the persecution that he has gone through, what he has suffered for the sake of Christ. Now, why was this urgent? Why did Paul need to address this? Well, it was urgent because there had been a loss of father-child spiritual authority. And Paul had to take a proactive step to restore at least his relationship with the majority of the church there. Because the only way that he could continue to encourage the church, the only way that he could continue to strengthen the church, is if he would be able to restore their relationship. And because of that, he writes to them. He defends himself, defends the, uh, the apostleship that he has. As we come into 2 Corinthians, I want to suggest that we can approach it from this way. 2 Corinthians is a letter that is a mix of three things. We will see that it's a mix of personal things, Paul's own life, things that he's been going through, things that he has been struggling with. There's also the pastoral in there as Paul writes to continue to shepherd this troubled, problematic church that he loves so much. And there is also the paradoxical in this book. And what we will see is that the personal will tell us and teach us to unite. The pastoral will help us to heal. The paradoxical will teach us how we, as Christ followers, must live triumphantly in tension. Amen? Y'all okay? Are we ready to go, people? Let's go. There's some excited people on the right-hand side. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, let's approach the personal first. The personal aspect of 2 Corinthians. Let's ask ourselves, what was Paul defending his apostleship against? Here are just a few things that he had been accused of. He was accused of being fickle because he had changed his travel plans. He was accused of being a snob because he didn't want to take money from the church in Corinth. At the same time, he was accused of using others to take money from the church. Paul was also accused of being imbalanced. He was accused of being uh, out of his mind. And he was accused of having wronged, corrupted, and exploited the church members. Remember we mentioned earlier, he was also defending his apostleship against these who he called super apostles. These guys that had come in to the church in Corinth with a swagger. They boasted about this super apostolic status that they had. They prided themselves on these letters that they carried, letters of recommendation that showed who they are and, and valued them and commended them. They were also, you know, playing up their eloquence and how they presented themselves. There was rhetorical showmanship in as they ministered and as they so-called ministered to the church in Corinth. In contrast to Paul, they say that Paul lacked charisma. He was timid. When you meet him, he's weak. He has no presence and yet his letters are so overbearing. Paul, he lacks eloquence. So these were some of the personal things that Paul was being accused of and that he had to defend himself against. And yet, what is his response? How does he respond? I'll give you two verses this morning. 2 Corinthians 11, 30 to 31. Let's read it together. Ready? One, two, go. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. We look at another one in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. Let's read it. Ready? One, two, go. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How many of you today would say you delight in weaknesses? You delight when people insult you, when you are being persecuted. It's tough, huh? 
But we have so much to learn from Apostle Paul as he teaches us through this epistle. What is the Apostle Paul saying? Essentially, he's saying this. It is not about charisma, but it is everything about character. What is he saying? He's saying it's not about form. It's not about what something looks like. But it is everything about substance. He says it's nothing to do with the external. It's not about how many titles you have in front of your name. Or how many letters you have at the back of your name. It's about none of that at all. But it has everything to do with what is inside of you. In fact, he says to the church in Corinth, he says this, you are judging by appearances. You are judging by appearances. How does this speak to us today? Here are just some things that we can take away. The first thing is this, don't ever mistake the externals for the internals. Don't ever mistake the externals for the internals. It's never going to be about how eloquent someone is. It's never going to be about how good they look. It's never going to be about how great the stage is or how good the light is. It has everything to do about the work of God inside that person. And because of that, we need to stay faithful to God and His Word and not to any person. No matter how impressive they look, no matter how much they are trending on social media, do not mistake the externals for the internals. What's another thing that we can take away from this? It is that we must stay planted in our local churches if you are being fed and it is preaching God's word. Stay planted. Stay planted. It doesn't stay, stay. Keep attending. Attending and being planted are two very different things, people. It says to stay planted, rooted in your local church if you are being fed and it is preaching God's word. Be careful about what we are pursuing. Young people especially, we're on social media scrolling through and someone who looks good in skinny jeans comes in and says something that sounds so profound, but we don't even know whether it is of the Word of God or not. Friend, stay planted in your local church so that you can continue to grow in knowing and understanding who God is so that you will not fall for the deception of the enemy. You think the enemy is going to come with a pitchfork and his devil horns? No. Scripture says he comes as an angel of light. We need to stay planted. We need to know and, and revere and, and love God and his word. We need to stay faithful where God has called us to be planted. So stay faithful. In here, in, in our local church, in Skyline, it's about being faithful to your connect groups even. Don't go connect group shopping. Stay planted so that you can grow. Stay faithful to your leaders. Stay faithful to your pastors. And not just that, but pray for them. Somebody say amen. Pray for them. Pastors who you know, come on, you want to give God praise? Give him a big praise. He is worthy, amen. You know, it's the people who have been with you year in and year out. People who have shown you their lives. People who, whose lives you know, who have lived out the gospel before you. These are the people who are worthy of, of your trust and your acceptance. Not some person who's, you know, looking good on a stage, big bright lights on social media. No. Stay faithful to where God has called you to be planted. And so that's the personal. What does the personal tell us to do? It tells us to be united. It tells us we need to be together. It tells us to unite. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, it says this. Let's read this together. Ready? One, two, go. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen. Isn't that good? So good to read God's word out aloud. Here's the second thing about 2 Corinthians. It's the pastoral. 
this is something really amazing, you know, when you consider the life and the things that the Apostle Paul has gone through. To begin with, he has this incredibly complicated relationship with the church. He starts out as this religious guy. But rather than loving the people of God, he was hunting them down and persecuting them. He hated the church. He celebrated the death of the first martyr. And everywhere he went, he just kept striking Christians down. Then one day, as he's on his way to persecute the church, on this road to Damascus, we are told, he encounters Jesus, the living God. And in that one moment, his life is totally, completely changed. And overnight, the church's enemy becomes the church's friends. But life isn't going to get easy for Paul. In fact, he's going to face, and we've read about them, but he will face many of the challenges of life in local church. And yet at the same time, he carries this immense love for the church, for the people of God, for the church in Corinth, as problematic, as troublesome, as difficult as painful as his experience with them was, he has this immense love for them. And how does he show that? Here are a couple, a few verses for you. You can just take note. But he says, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort, for your salvation. He also says, I wrote to you out of great distress, anguish of heart, many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. And he says, I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. And he says this, I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less. You see, we observe his heart, the heart of a father that is yearning, that is longing, that loves his spiritual children. And so although he writes this letter to set the record straight, to bring correction and rebuke, it is really coming from the heart of a loving father so that the church in Corinthians can correct its course towards repentance and continue to fulfill the call that God had for them. How do we learn from this, um, from the pastoral aspect of 2 Corinthians? Well, I want to start with maybe thinking and talking about modern day pastors for a short moment. So if you're my fellow pastor here, I'm talking to you, but I'm also talking to you if you're a connect group leader or if you are in any form of a role where you shepherd people in your life. God has given you lives to shepherd and you're in a role where you have influence, where you have, uh, you have care for them and you're looking after them. You know, I feel that pastors in this age, sometimes we get caught up in the world and its trappings. And by that, I mean sometimes we can appear to be quite corporate. On the other end of the spectrum, we have pastors who are, pastors who are celebrities, Thousands, maybe even some have millions of followers on social media. But for all of us who are pastors or who look after and care for other people, I say this to myself and I say it as somebody who is walking this journey with you as well, that we need to love our sheep more openly, more tangibly, more relationally. Not more corporately, but more openly, more relationally. In a big church like ours, this is unlikely to be ever achieved perfectly because we are as human as you are. But we can continue to grow. We can continue to improve and be better in our love and our care for you. And when doing that, we must always continue to be available, to be approachable, and to know your hearts. Amen? And I'm not afraid to say today, and I, I will say this on behalf of all my fellow pastors as well, 
that you know what gives us the greatest joy? It's not the fact that we have a new building or some cool gadgets there, here, everywhere. As good as that is, amen? We honor the Lord. We thank Him for what He has blessed us with. But what gives us the greatest joy in what we do is you, the church. It is your your growth. It is your spiritual transformation. It is the health of the church as a whole. These are the things that give us joy. More than the size of the building. More than what it looks like. More than what the toilets smell like. Oh my goodness. It's about you. It's about the church. Amen. And maybe you're here today, you're like, oh, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a leader of any sort. I want to encourage you from this epistle, from overall this overview, I want to share with you about four ways that Paul teaches how we can grow in our love for the church, even when it is hard. Now, the first way is this. It is that we must always speak truth. Amen? What does Paul say? You know, several instances in this epistle, despite all that he has gone through, despite how he's been treated, despite what the church's Corinth has said about him, has accused him of, he continues to call them my brothers and sisters. He continues to affirm that they are his family. He continues to affirm the relationship that they have. Where I think for us sometimes, you know, when we are having a hard time at church, our inclination, the natural tendency we have when we are having problems with people at church is to speak poorly of them. To criticize, to gossip, to distance ourselves from those people. Friends, we are brothers and sisters. And we want to affirm that truth loudly and proudly as Paul does to the church in Corinth. Because he shows us that God loves the church. Paul shows us through his life how he has loved the church. And how God has valued the church with the life of who? The life of Jesus. And because of that, we ought to speak of one another with honor and with love. Amen? Amen. We can all grow in this. The second thing that Paul teaches us is to show up. You know, for many reasons, Paul wasn't able to always be with the churches that he had planted. But his writings show us that he longed to be with them. Early in the, in the first chapter of the book, we see this. He says, I wanted to visit you. I wanted to visit you twice. I want to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come back to you. And then you send me off to Judea. He has this longing to always be with them. And at the end of the book, with great poignancy, what does he say? He says, to greet one another with a holy kiss. A kiss is not something that you give from a hundred meters away. It's something that requires you to come close to a person, to come and look at them in their eye. And in the culture of the time when this was written, they would give nose to nose, greeting each other with a holy kiss. What is Paul's point? We got to show up. We have to show up. Not only did Paul write to the churches, but he had this desire to be with them. And I say this, and I acknowledge this. It is not easy to show up in church week after week, especially when you are going through a hard time. But can I say this with all the love in my heart? It is necessary. And not only because Scripture commands us to, but the Apostle Paul, through this epistle, reminds us that when we are meeting with one another, it is a vital way to encourage our love for Christ's church. Amen? Here's the third thing. It is to invest. You see, the Apostle Paul, he loved the church in Corinth, not just with words, but also with his actions, okay? And uh, this will be very quick. You can either just follow along or take a picture. But he says all these things that he had to go through. He had to invest of himself into loving this church, you know, being under pressure. 
He says having to go through troubles and hardships and distress, beatings, imprisonments, and riots. While pastors, we are held to such a high standard, okay? Just saying, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. And he says, I face daily the, the pressure or the anxiety of my concern for all the churches. You know, when we together, when we choose to sacrificially serve the church, what do I mean by that? It is when we sacrificially invest in the well-being of our church family in any way that we can, in any way that we can. When we do that, we will find that our lives become knit together with God's people. And in the knitting together of our lives, as we begin to love intentionally one another with actions, we will begin to love them with our hearts. Amen? I know sometimes we say, I am so hard to love them. I don't feel. I got no feeling. Friend, don't live by feeling alone. Amen? Lead with action and walk in faith, not by sight. And your heart will follow. Invest. And here's one last thing that he says to us. Give thanks. If you read not just this letter, but across Paul's letters to various churches, you see that he is so full of thanksgiving. He is always giving thanks to God for something. In the case of 2 Corinthians, he's thanking God for their prayers. He's thanking God for their generosity. And, you know, we can imagine Paul looking for things. What else can I thank God for? What else can I give God thanks for as I write to these people? And, in fact, here too, we can learn from him. And I ask us this question humbly, but when was the last time that you gave thanks to God for your church? When was the last time that you thought about the life of somebody in church or you thought about the lives of people in church and you gave God thanks for them? Do we look for reasons to be grateful? Do we publicly express our thanksgiving? And the lesson here is this, that as we deliberately give thanks. As we overflow in giving thanks, we will find a multitude of reasons to love the church. Amen. You see, the truth about the church shaped Paul's experience of the church. And that same truth should shape us as well. So that whenever we gather, we come to this gathering that actually, you know, to be honest, we are fairly unremarkable people. We just have an extraordinary God. Amen. But it's when we gather together, when we meet, when we encounter one another, Christ becomes manifest in the midst of us. So that is why we all need to go to the next level in loving our children church. Somebody say amen. amen. And here is the third thing about 2 Corinthians that we take away from. It is the paradoxical. The pastoral, okay, if the personal helps us to unite, the pastoral helps us to heal together. Amen? Amen. And so we go on to the paradoxical. Here's the third thing about this epistle. It is paradoxes. 2 Corinthians, chock-a-block, full of paradoxes. What are paradoxes? They appear to be superficially on the outside, opposite to each other, okay? But when we live the deeper life of Christ, we begin to experience the truths of these paradoxes. There are so many paradoxes uh, in the Bible. We'll know some of them. Jesus was both God and man. He is three, yet one. He was born of a woman, yet conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the word of God, but written by man. God is sovereign, yet we have free will. Those are examples of paradoxes you'll find in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians, so, so many. And I'm sure we'll encounter them again as we go through these series. But it's things like suffering, yet triumphant. Dying, yet living. Poor, yet rich. Weak, yet strong. What do paradoxes have in common? Essentially, they contrast an earthly view with a heavenly view. And what that means is that there is a difference 
between our current physical material situation. There is a difference between our material situation and our spiritual reality. But we experience both at the same time. So we find ourselves caught and living in this tension of earthly versus heavenly. Paradoxes are bigger and deeper than we can imagine. And they invite us into the mystery that is God and how He works. And not only that, but they reveal deep spiritual truths, rich truths, beautiful truths that sometimes will take time for us to grasp. Because it's not just about knowledge, but it is about walking and living that life and experiencing the paradox of our material, physical situation and the spiritual promise that we have from God. Amen? I just want to take a couple this morning as we think about paradoxes. And uh, let's think about suffering yet triumph, triumphing and dying yet living. You know, I will never ever forget about 20 years ago when I was still a university student, I was attending a church and a couple of my pastors were going through a really, really tough time. One of them just had a stage three diagnosis of throat cancer. The other one, her father uh, had just been diagnosed terminally ill, leukemia. And I remember at that time what they said because they were going through these struggles and yet they shared. And both of them said these exact words. They said, I have total faith that God can and will heal. And God can do that miraculously, or He can do it through medicine. But even if He does not do either of those, even though my physical body continues to waste away, I know that when I step into eternity, there I will be fully healed. There I will receive my complete healing. And I remember thinking, wow, that is such a bold statement to take. And a part of me questioned it because I said, that kind of sounds like it's a cop-out. You're just saying that when you die, you get your healing because you didn't get your healing by miracle or by medicine. But as I've journeyed through walking with God, going through loss in my own life, I understand what it means to live suffering yet triumphing, dying yet living. Wasting away day by day, we are a day closer to our physical and yet we live and yet we can live triumphantly. How does Paul answer this paradox? Takes us to chapter 5 and he basically says to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Friends, you and I, we are eternal beings, amen? Don't forget that. We are eternal beings. And as eternal beings, we should have a longing for our eternal home. And it is the Holy Spirit who confirms our eternal residence. Whenever I think of Apostle Paul, I always think of a dish rag, you know. It's like he was squeezed. Every single last drop of him was squeezed out for all the churches that he had planted, all the churches that he had loved. And I, I see that as in his way of being present with the church, in the afflictions that he had gone through, in the suffering, in the, in the prayers that he had prayed. And yet, despite all of that, he maintained this amazing eternal Focus, focusing on the unseen things. In fact, we can argue that the only reason he was able to live a life of mission like that on earth was because he had a perspective about eternity. And this is what he says. He says this, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And he says, for this light, think of what he's gone through. For this light, momentary affliction. He calls it light. 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Today, if you find that you struggle to long for an eternal home, I just want you maybe to consider asking yourself, why? What area of your life or of your heart are you holding back from fully trusting Jesus? One more paradox, let's look at weak yet strong. There's an inspiring woman who at the age of 17 went diving, had an accident that broke her neck, rendered her a quadriplegic, lost her use of all four limbs. Many of you will recognize her name. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tada. That is her and her husband, Ken. And um, today, this year, she's 74. Decades, decades after the accident, she's lived her life as a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. She shares this amazing story about a time when she was at a Christian woman's conference and she was in the restroom during a break. And a lady comes up to her while this lady is putting on lipstick. Remember, Johnny can't use her, her arms, so she's just there in her wheelchair. And this woman says to Johnny, she says, How do you do it? You always look so together. You always look so full of joy. I wish that I had your joy. Other women around nodded in agreement, asking her, how do you do it? And this is what Johnny says. She says, well, today is an average day. My husband woke up to go to work, so I've been alone since 6 a.m. in the morning. At 7 o'clock, my friend comes to take care of me, uh, and she will come to help me get up, give me a bath and everything. While she's making coffee, Johnny says, I pray, Lord, my friend will soon give me a bath. She will get me dressed. She will get me to sit in my chair. She will brush my hair. She will brush my teeth. And she will send me out the door. And Johnny says, God, I don't have the strength to do this routine one more time. I have no resources. I don't have a smile to take into the day. But God, you do. So God, may I have yours. God, I need you desperately. And one of the other ladies, they ask her, oh, so what happens then when your friend comes into the room? And Johnny says, I turn my head towards her and I give her a smile sent straight from heaven. It is not mine, it is God's. And she points at her paralyzed legs in front of all these women in the restroom and she says, whatever joy you see today was hard won this morning and she said shares this she says I have learned that the weaker we are the more we need to lean on God and the more that we lean on God the stronger we find him to be and that is the paradox of living triumphantly in spite of what we are experiencing in our material reality. So 2 Corinthians, it's a mix of the personal, the pastoral, the paradoxical. The personal rallies us, calls us to unite. The pastoral helps us to heal and to grow in our love for God's church. The paradoxical shows us how we must live triumphantly in the tension between our earthly reality and our spiritual reality. 
As we close this morning, I want to say to us that I really believe God has called every one of us, even those right at the back of the last row, God has called us to live triumphantly. Somebody say amen. This is the kind of life that Jesus died on the cross for you and I. It is the kind of life that though we may be suffering and wasting away and dying, yet we live, yet we are alive, yet we triumph. Even though we go through lack and weakness and poverty, yet we are rich, we are strong. That is the paradox of triumphant living. And that is what we are called to as a church. Amen. That is the life God has for us. Not just some alang-alang life, but it is a triumphant life. It is a life that manifests His glory. It is a life of victory. And so, as we start this series, as we navigate the personal, the pastoral, and the paradoxical, we will find that truly we are being changed from glory to glory to glory to glory. Somebody say, Amen. Hallelujah. Come on, give Him praise. Give Him praise. I want to pray for us today. And if that's you today, you say, wow, I want to step into this triumphant living in this season. I want us to be standing wherever we are. We want to step into the life that God has for us. Not a life that is mediocre, not a life that is just alang-alang, but the life that God calls us to, that is abundant life, that is triumphant life, that is victorious life. And I don't know what you may be struggling with in this time, in this season, whether there is weakness, whether there is a lack, whether there is poverty, whether there is suffering, whether even there is dying. But today God calls us to fix our eyes on the things that are eternal, on the things that are unseen. And in that place, we will begin to live triumphantly. Amen. This morning, we want to worship as a response to God. And whatever it is you are going through, Whatever suffering, whatever affliction, whatever pain, whatever sorrow, whatever weakness, whatever lack that you are going through. One, number one, you are not alone. The Word tells us that He is close to those who are brokenhearted. He's close with you whatever you are walking through in this season. But number two, even, even as you reckon with the reality that you are facing here and now, you keep your eyes on what is eternal, on what is unseen. And in that place, we will begin to live triumphantly. Amen. We will begin to live the triumphant life that God has called us. We will begin to live victorious we will begin to take a hold of all that God has for us. So let's worship just as we sing this chorus right now. Come on, let's just worship for a few moments today. That's right. this place, all eyes closed, all heads bowed. 
Maybe you're here and you joined us for the first time today, or maybe you've been here for a while. You've been coming to church. You've been taking it all in. But today you are not in a relationship with Jesus. Today I want to give us an invitation to respond to God's love and His grace that was shown over 2,000 years ago when He sent His one and only Son to die a lonely death on a cross, to take away, pay the penalty for your sin and mine so that we could have the life that He offers, which is a new life, the hope that He offers, which is a new hope, changing and taking and transforming us into what we have truly, truly been created to be. So all over this place now, nobody looking around. If that is you today and you say, I want to give my life to Jesus. I need to give my life to Jesus today. Do not wait another day. Do not wait another day, but respond today. And if that is you, I ask you to be bold and to slip up your hand and I will see it. And we'll pray together just a simple prayer this morning. But anyone here today, you want to give your life to Jesus. You know that you are not in relationship with Jesus. You know that you have backslidden. You have fallen away. Today, God calls you to come home. He waits for you with open arms. And so no one looking around. But if that is you, slip up your hand. I will see it and we'll pray together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. We worship you, Jesus. Thank you, God. We praise you. We worship you, God. Thank you, Father. If there's no one, I thank the Lord that we all have access to the triumphant life that is in Christ Jesus. And right now, why don't we just lift our hands as I pray to bless us. God, this year, it is our desire to live the triumphant life that you have called us to. God, we don't want to settle for anything less than what you have called us to. And so this morning, we renew our commitment to you. We renew our commitment to fix our eyes on what is unseen, to fix our eyes on eternity to live this reality that, that knows where we are here but takes a hold of your promises for our lives so that we can live triumphantly so that our church can be a triumphant church for your glory in Jesus name receive it all wherever you are receive it we receive it with gratitude and thanksgiving Lord you are so good to us in Jesus name Everybody says amen. Amen. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's give God praise. Let's give God praise. He's so good. He's so good. So good. If you were encouraged by the message, share this podcast with a friend or family member and check out our previous episodes. Thanks for tuning in.